Our second Bible reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 28, through chapter 2, verse 17. And about long reading. Okay. This is what Scripture says. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to try to put my Bible here. Please uh, bow with me for a word of prayer. Our Father, we do give you thanks for the scriptures, which are so full of extraordinary things to enrich us, to encourage us, and to direct us. We pray now that you would teach us by your Spirit, and that your word might govern every aspect of our lives. For Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. As you can see from our service bulletin, the title of this talk is Why We Work. This is meant to be somewhat of a provocative title. Why do we work? Suppose we did not work. Try to imagine that. There are people everywhere around the world who cannot work. They're very elderly or they're very young or they have some mental or physical disability that keeps them from working. And perhaps there are other situations. Those who cannot work, though, generally rely on the work of others. But suppose no one worked. No one. The human race would probably pretty quickly die out. We work because we must. People the world over, Christian or not, biblically literate or not, know the truth of the Apostle Paul's statement 
in his second letter to the Thessalonians, that I think it was Liz who read that for us, chapter 3, verse 10, that one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We work because we must. But what more can we say? I want to come at this, at least initially, through one of the historic uh, catechisms of the church, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Even if you're not familiar with that catechism, you've probably heard the first question and answer before, which are justly famous. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Theologian Wayne Grudem says it's probable that to most people the phrase to glorify God or the expression glorifying God kind of sounds like it belongs in church. Not on the construction site, not on the trading floor, not in the office, not in the classroom, perhaps not even in the home. When people hear the phrase to glorify God, as Grudem says, it probably first implies worship, singing praises to God and giving him thanks. It might also suggest evangelism, telling others about God. It might suggest moral living, behaving in a way that honors God. And these are all ways that we can and do glorify God. But there are other ways to glorify God that are often overlooked. And our text this morning shows us what three of those ways are. And these are the key, I think, to why we have an instinctive drive to work, to study, to be productive, to be creative, to earn and to save and to give and do so many of the other things that occupy our days. And we're going to look at each of these three in turn, although somewhat briefly. There's much more that can be said. Entire books have been written about this. So we're really just scratching the surface. So I want to begin actually in verse 27. I know you don't have that in front of you, Genesis 1:27, but let me read that and then I'm going to read 28. So Genesis 1:27, 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it." and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God blessed them. The blessing in verse 28 is primarily, though not exclusively, posterity, descendants. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Now that sounds like a command, but imperatives in Hebrew are not always commands, and that's the case here. This is really more blessing than command. And much of the rest of the book of Genesis is focused on the fulfillment of the blessing of fruitfulness. In Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1, after the flood, the scripture reads, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And this is repeated a few verses later in verse 7. In Genesis 17, God appeared to Abraham and said, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. In Genesis 28, Abraham's son Isaac called his own son Jacob and said to him, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. In Genesis 35, God appeared to Jacob and blessed him, changed his name to Israel, and said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. And finally, in Genesis 48, Jacob is reunited with his son Joseph and uh, recounts to him what God had said to him earlier, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. 
And then Jacob blessed Joseph's two sons, remember Manasseh and Ephraim, and said, let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Now when we read the Bible, we often come across genealogies, and I know that genealogies don't often make for thrilling reading in scripture, but there are six of them in Genesis alone, each one bearing testimony to the fulfillment of God's word of blessing. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. After all, how else was Israel to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, as God refers to his people at Mount Sinai just before the giving of the Ten Commandments? Unless you think this is just a Genesis thing, something long ago and far away, something old, you can also go to the very back of the Bible in the book of Revelation. And remember, this is Revelation. This is John in exile on the island of Patmos. And he has this great vision. And in Revelation 7, he says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, family, posterity, descendants, is God's design for the good of human society on earth. Family is a blessing. It's a means whereby God seeks to advance his purposes and populate his kingdom. So having families, raising families, was one of the principal ways we join with God in his purposes for man. And this teaching runs throughout the scriptures. If you look at the last uh, of the prophetic books in the Old Testament, the last of uh, the writing prophets, Malachi, in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15, the scripture says of husband and wife, did he, meaning God, not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Friends, Genesis 1.28 is a clear, positive statement of the divine purpose of marriage. It's for the procreation of children. God desires his people to be fruitful. Now, at this point, some of you might be thinking, I thought you said this was about work, why we work. Good question, but I think I have an answer. Family involves work, hard work. We don't just have children, we raise them, we nurture them, we teach them. Being fruitful then is not just a matter of biology. There's a spiritual component as well, which we can read about in a number of texts. Remember in the book of Deuteronomy, the people of Israel are on the cusp of entering the promised land, and Moses is preaching to them. In Deuteronomy 5, he recounts again the Ten Commandments. Then in Deuteronomy 6, he says this, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Over in Psalm 78, the psalmist says, Tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord, and his might, and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 6, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And there are other texts as well. 
first nine chapters of Proverbs is all about a man teaching his son. God's design in families is spiritual fruitfulness, which involves labor, primarily parental labor. Parents and prospective parents, the most important school your children will ever attend is your own home. Now this emphasis on posterity cuts two ways. In Proverbs 17 and verse 6, the scripture says, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. So why do we work? To raise our families for the Lord. That's the work we're called to. And as I said, it's primarily a matter of parental labor. But to the extent that we pray for the children here at the church and work, I don't know if you have a nursery yet or Sunday school, but the extent that somebody's watching little ones and teaching them, and otherwise are kind to the children and the younger generation and show an interest in their lives, it's really a matter for all of us. All believers should care deeply about future generations. Working hard to raise the next generation for Christ is a great and noble task. Remember, we're always just one generation away from losing the gospel. Remember, too, that children do not stand in the way of our happiness. They are God's gift to us, evidence of his blessing. So we work to raise our families for the Lord. We work for the next generation. But why else do we work? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth is not just about having children. Not everybody has children. But family, posterity, is the foundation of all our social institutions. Right? Think about it this way, right? As more and more people populate the earth, this gives rise to other, other things, civic relationships, institutions, and responsibilities. The school, the church, the village, the nation, to name just a few. Schools need teachers, churches need pastors and musicians. The village needs local leadership and probably law enforcement. The nation needs government and provision for its defense. Buildings will be built, requiring construction workers, architects, engineers. I mean, you can see where all this is going. Verse 28 includes an expectation of human achievement in a variety of domains, music, the arts, and yes, even business. If you remember the uh, book of Proverbs, right? A lot of people don't remember much in Proverbs, but uh, a lot of folks remember Proverbs 31 the account of the noble woman. It begins in Proverbs 31, verse 10, uh, with the statement, uh, an excellent wife who can find. And then the writer proceeds to list the characteristics uh, of this uh, woman. Well, have you ever noticed what that woman is commended for in Proverbs 31? What is she commended for? In 31, verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. Verse 18, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Verse 19, she puts her hands to the distaff, that's a tool used for spinning cloth, and her hands hold the spindle. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. This is business, which requires methods for resolving disputes and mechanisms for the buying and selling of land and other property. You, begin, you can begin to think of ownership, money, commercial transactions, profit, and so forth. In the New Testament, Matthew 20, Jesus tells the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Remember the master of the vineyard hires laborers to work in his field. He hires them, he owns the property, right? He hires them, 
he pays them, right? That's employment, that's money, that's business. But sadly, I think, very few Christians today see their daily work as directly connected to the calling and purposes of God. But the truth is that more people are drawn by God into a specific form of work than are aware of it. And more work than we realize has a role in fulfilling God's purposes. Our calling is to develop the whole social and civic order, which is really an ongoing task. You know, another way to think about this is think about human diversity alone. Right? We are, all of us, even in this theater, so very different from one another in our interests, our talents, our gifts, and our abilities. Human diversity alone suggests that we were designed by God for a variety of tasks and even for specialization. God has given us a variety of gifts and wisdom and skill and curiosity to be fruitful, to be innovative, to be experimental. In some sense, we were created to be creative in the image of God who works, in the image of God who creates. Our task then, our blessing, is to build civilization. That's in part what verse 28 is about. Honest work then, productive work, is morally good. It's what we're called to do, and it's one way we have of glorifying God. And such work has inherent value. And I really want to stress this. You know, I've spent my entire life uh, working. I'm not a pastor. I've never been one. Uh, I've just worked and worked and worked. (laughs) Uh, uh, Not not the pastors don't work, but uh, I've worked in a secular occupation, let's put it that way. Such work has inherent value. In other words, we don't work only for a paycheck. We don't work only for the weekend. And the office or the construction site or what have you, the classroom, is not just a cover for witnessing to Christ. The work itself has inherent value. So I hope that when you get up to morning and go about your daily tasks, you'll go to your work joyfully. Why else do we work? We're still in verse 28. Subdue the earth, have dominion over all living things, over all the earth. And remember, this is part of the blessing that verse 28 begins with. We work because we've been blessed with a vocation and a task. And I think this is why we have an instinctive drive to work, to be productive, to create, and so forth. But what do these terms mean? Subdue the earth, have dominion. Well, in scripture, these two words, subdue and dominion, are always used to refer to an action in which man reduces something to his use through the application of force. More specifically, subdue the earth has the sense of drawing out from the earth its treasures, and dominion gives man the right and responsibility to rule, to govern the rest of creation. Now, the text does not tell us how subduing the earth, how dominion is to be exercised, but given that these tasks are God-given, it would seem that they're to be carried out benevolently and with restraint in accord with God's own example and intentions. This exercise of dominion, of subduing the earth, means work. Again, work is part of God's design for us, part of the divine plan for man. And notice this is before sin entered the world. Work may be harder after the fall, but work itself is a gift and a blessing. 
if you've ever been out of work and you're looking for work, when you finally get that work, you know it's a gift and a blessing. Work has inherent value. It's not a curse. Work is God's call on our lives. And there's a long uh, tradition in Christian theology that views subduing the earth and exercising dominion as man's blessed task to develop creation, to make human culture, culture broadly conceived. And this is almost an innate drive we have, an impulse to do this. Now look, if you will, at Genesis chapter 2, verse, beginning at verse 10, 10 through 14. A river flowed out of Egypt, out of Eden, Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. This bit of geographic detail is not just so we can locate Eden on a map. Mention is made of rivers and of gold and delium and onyx stone, almost as if God were saying, it's there, Adam. See what you can do with it. Over in chapter 4, we read of the descendants of Cain, one named Jubal, the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe, think music, and another named Tubal-Cain, the forger of instruments of bronze and iron, think tools, weapons, perhaps other uses. Over in Deuteronomy, again, the people are on the cusp of entering the Promised Land, and Moses tells them in chapter 8 that the Promised Land is a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, of olive trees and honey. In other words, the people are going to cultivate this land. They're going to bring forth food. There's going to be the buying and selling of food. This is kind of an extension of what we read in our text down in chapter 2, verse 15, where it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, to work it and keep it. Still in Deuteronomy in chapter 8, Moses also says that the promised land is a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. Ancient mining. But iron? Copper? For what? In subduing the earth, man is to draw out its treasures and see what he can make of them. And we're still doing this. Right? Turning sand into silicon chips and oil into plastic and other developments as well. Friends, this world is ours to explore and subdue and develop benevolently to make all creation flourish. In contrast then to some people's attitudes toward life today, productive work is not evil or undesirable in itself or something to be avoided. Productive work should be seen as something good. It's a principal way we have of glorifying God and fulfilling his purposes for us. And as one commentator has noted, the Bible does not view positively the idea of retiring early and not working at anything again. I came across that uh, statement a few months back and uh, I had to give that some serious thought because in um, in September of 2020, I actually took a retirement package from my employer and basically retired. And I've been pretty busy since then, uh, but maybe not busy enough. And so what I did was took on some uh, temporary legal work, which I'm still doing. So I'm still working, not, not as many hours as I did before, but I'm still working. Now we may have to leave a job, right? We all have to leave jobs at times, but we don't retire from life. 
And although work since the fall has aspects of pain and futility, it's still not morally neutral, but fundamentally good and pleasing to God. Now, that's not to say that there aren't ethical issues with work sometimes, people issues, some difficulties at times in our jobs. Significant temptations accompany all work. Temptations to pride, to materialism, to greed, hard-heartedness, laziness, workaholism. But distortions of something good must not cause us to think that work itself is evil. Again, honest, productive work is morally good and pleasing to God. And if we do our work heartily, as the Apostle Paul says, as for the Lord and not for men, God delights in us, and others will see something of God's character in us as well. So we work to subdue the earth, to exercise dominion, to rule. What should characterize our attitude toward our work? Look at verse 31, yeah, chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God here is reflecting on his own work and took delight in it. He saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, this is picked up in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, where the biblical writer says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? We are to find enjoyment in our work and to take delight in our work and our accomplishments no matter how low or mean these may appear to other people. Now, I realize not everybody likes what they do. Uh, sometimes there's a, an opportunity to change your work. It doesn't, it doesn't suit you. It doesn't make good use of your talents or gifts or abilities. So we have an opportunity in this society anyway to, to change our, our jobs, but not always. Sometimes we're in our work for a long time and we don't enjoy it. What do we do then? How do we get to a point where we can enjoy our work? Well, I think Ecclesiastes has part of the answer. Apart from God, who can eat, who can have enjoyment? Enjoyment in our work is from the hand of God. And I think we need to pray and ask God to give us that kind of enjoyment, to give us enjoyment in our work. And I think we really need to hear and heed and meditate on the Apostle Paul's admonitions in his letter to the Colossians, whatever you do, the Apostle writes, whatever you do, whether that's making a meal or doing the laundry or laying bricks or writing policies and procedures, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. A little later in Colossians, Paul said, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men. What the Apostle is getting at is this. The task may appear unimportant or trivial, but the person doing it is never that. And we all have the opportunity to turn the task into an act of worship. That's what St. Paul is getting at. That's the way we find enjoyment in our work 
That's how we glorify God in our work. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be instantaneous, but I think, think we can get there through prayer and a serious consideration of what the Apostle Paul has to say, and then turning our work into an act of worship. That's how we can find enjoyment in our work. Why else do we work? And we'll finish with this one. One final way to glorify God is by imitation. Imitation. In his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul commands us, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now we want to focus here on Genesis 1, 26 and 27. I know you don't have that in front of you, but bear with me as I read those two verses. Genesis 1, 26, 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. To be in God's image means to be like God and to represent God on the earth. And this is why I think the Apostle Paul commands us in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God. Now, this idea of imitating God explains many of the commands in the Bible. For instance, we love because he first loved us, or you shall be holy, for I am holy. Similarly, Jesus taught, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The Lord also said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God wants us to be like him, to imitate his character. He's truthful, he wants us to be truthful. He makes and keeps promises, he wants us to keep promises as well. And God created us in such a way that we would want to imitate him, to imitate his character and see reflections of his character in our own actions and in the actions of others. And one of the things that characterizes God is work. Look now at uh, Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now that passage is about rest. There's no doubt about that. But notice that three times it refers to God having worked. And this is where we get that whole rhythm of work and rest, work and rest, which is picked up in the Ten Commandments in Exodus. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, and then the Sabbath is a day of rest. We imitate God when we work. He works, we work. He rests, we rest. God wants us to be like him. And in Scripture, interestingly enough, the character and work of God is often revealed in biblical images drawn from the world of everyday work, suggesting again that such work is good and pleasing in God's sight. A few examples. Scripture portrays God as the actual composer of songs. Did you know that? For instance, at the time of the transfer of power from Moses to Joshua, God told these leaders to, quote, write down this song and teach it to the Israelites, and then have them sing it. That's in Deuteronomy 31.19. In 
In the prophet Zephaniah chapter 3, God himself is depicted as singing. He is both composer and performer. God is also depicted as a metal worker and a potter, a garment maker and a dresser, a gardener, a farmer, a winemaker, a shepherd, a builder, and an architect. God himself reveals himself in biblical images drawn from the world of everyday work, suggesting again that such work is morally good and pleasing in his sight. God works, we work. Be imitators of God. Friends, we glorify God in our work, raising our families for Christ, teaching the next generation, building civilization, which is an ongoing task, drawing out of the earth its treasures, exercising dominion over all creation, and imitating God. As Jesus said in John chapter 5, my father is working until now, and I am working. Working is both blessing and task, and one of the principal ways we glorify God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do uh, pray and ask that you would impress upon us that we do your work and fulfill your calling in our lives, in the church and in the world, in creation, in the home, in society, in community, in politics, in culture, in education and business, all the domains which we are making and mending. We pray that you would remind us that our daily work is a blessing, a task, and a godlike activity. For Jesus' sake and in his name, amen.